The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the first four episodes, we began to ask and answer one of many classical questions posed by atheists, secular humanists, the world, and sadly by many who should know better, but have perhaps never done their theological homework. In this case, the question asked was, If God is a God of love then how could God order the killing of every Canaanite man, woman, and child? During part one of the previous episodes, we discussed four issues, including the lack of intellectual sincerity, intellectual honesty, the hypocrisy, and the lack of ultimate authority possessed by atheists and secular humanists who are generally the ones asking these type questions. In episode 2, we discussed five issues including God's sovereignty, God's property rights, God's justice, the importance of separation, and wartime ethics. 
In part three, we discussed three issues, including the need to understand the continuity and context of God's word, intrusion ethics, as well as God's mercy. In episode four, we discussed issues including survival, the messianic line, and the nature and character of the Canaanite people. In this episode, we intend to continue answering our question as well as completing the accompanying discussion and study. As before, our goal is to come away with a better understanding of God's nature as well as our relationship to Him. We begin in this episode where we left off with issue number 15, the nature and character of the Canaanite people. As we concluded episode 4, you will recall that the three primary deities who emerge in the history of the Canaanite worship are Baal, Ashtoreth, and Moloch. Now, the worship of Baal was established in Babylon, in the famous Tower of Babel, the uppermost room of which served at the same time as an observatory and as the repository of a collection of astronomical observations. The name Baal, which means quote-unquote Lord or quote-unquote Master, can be traced back being synonymous in identity to Nimrod. Nimrod founded Babylon along with the Babylonian system of mystery religion from which many, if not most, pagan religions find their ancestry. The Babylonian priests of Nimrod's time were called Kana, meaning priest. Kana is an emphatic form of Khan, meaning quote-unquote a priest. Nimrod, or Baal, was considered the head of the religious system. He was looked upon as a god, a deity, or lord, as the name Baal indicates. The priests, Kana, would therefore be called Kana Baal. Since, among other heinous things, the Babylonian worship system required the grisly practice of human sacrifice and eating of various human organs, these priests and their practices gave birth to the infamous word which we now know today as cannibalism. The Canaanites worshipped Baal as the sun and storm god. They also worshipped him as a fertility god who provided children. Baal worship was rooted in sensuality and involved ritualistic prostitution in the temples. At times, as in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 5, appeasing Baal required the sacrifice of the firstborn of the one making the sacrifice. The officiating priests danced around the altars, chanting frantically, cutting themselves with knives to inspire the attention and compassion of the god. Now, insofar as Astra or Ashtoreth, this was the name of the chief female deity worshipped in ancient Syria, Phoenicia, and Canaan. The Phoenicians called her Ashtarte, the Assyrians worshipped her as Ishtar, and the Philistines had a temple of Ashtaroth. 
Ashtaroth was represented by a limbless tree trunk planted in the ground. The trunk was usually carved into a symbolic representation of the goddess. Some sources suggest that the wooden pole was set into a stone base as a phallic symbol. Because of the association with carved trees, the places of Ashtaroth worship were commonly called quote-unquote groves, and the Hebrew word Ashtaroth, plural Ashtarim, could refer either to the goddess or to a grove of trees. Ashtaroth was worshipped in various ways, including through ritual sex. Although she was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. Pagans practiced sympathetic magic, that is, they believed that they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior they wished the gods to demonstrate. So, believing the sexual union of Baal and Ashtra produced fertility, male and female worshippers engaged in various sex acts, including sodomy between themselves, to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvests. This practice, in fact, became the basis for religious prostitution, such as we see in 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 and 24. The priest, or a male member of the community, represented Baal. The priestess, or a female member of the community, represented Ashtaroth. In this way, God's incredible gift of sexuality was perverted to the most obscene public prostitution. Finally, Moloch was a fire god. In addition to sexual rituals, Moloch worship included child sacrifice or, quote, passing children through the fire, unquote. The idols of Moloch were giant metal statues of a man with a bull's head. Each image had a hole in the abdomen area with outstretched forearms that made a kind of ramp to the hole. A fire was lit in and around the statues, and worshippers would heat this idol up with fire until it was glowing. As a matter of fact, in 1921, French archaeologists excavated some of the ancient city of Carthage, which covers much of the current area of the coast of North Africa, as well as encompassing substantial parts of coastal Iberia and the islands of the western Mediterranean Sea. In doing so, they found an area which appeared to be an ancient graveyard with hundreds of grave markers. Underneath each marker was a clay urn containing the cremated remains of human infants and animals. As many as seven urns were found one on top of another under a single marker in some cases. The soil in the area was rich with olive wood, charcoal, indicating fires had been kept burning here for long periods of time. The archaeologists called the place a Tophet. The name Tophet, or Topheth, is derived from the Hebrew word tof, meaning a drum. In time, many more Tophet cemeteries were discovered. The largest contained the remains of approximately 20 
thousand infants in urns as well as some animals. Charred skeletons of children have also been discovered together at Gezer and Ta'anak and Megiddo of Palestine. The usage and meaning of tof and the drum became associated due to the sacrificial ritual of the Canaanites. During these rites, the Canaanite parents would place the newborn living babies and children up to about four years old into the outstretched arms of the idol representing Baal and or Molech. The parents were by tradition taught to stand by, tearless and uncomplaining and watch as their child would cry and scream being burnt while their bodies rolled down the arms into the blazing fire beneath inside the hollowed out idol of Moloch. During this time, cymbals, trumpets, and drums would be played to mask the sounds of the screaming children. Hence the drums, tof, became synonymous with a place of child sacrifice. When a couple sacrificed their firstborn, they believed that Moloch would ensure financial prosperity for the family and future children. Now, further evidence comes from the city of Carthage, home of the Carthaginians, which was an ancient Phoenician city-state. The ancient city of Carthage is located in modern-day Tunis in Tunisia. The two main deities at Carthage were Baal Haman and his consort Tanit. Here, Baal Haman is often depicted with a crescent moon, while Tanit, his consort, is shown with outstretched arms as previously described. Archaeological excavations at Byblos, modern-day Lebanon, provide evidence to support that the Phoenicians arose from the Canaanites in general. Writing in the 4th century BC, the Greek historian Cleterachus wrote regarding Carthaginian practices, quote, There stands in their midst a bronze statue of Kronos, its hands extended over a bronze brazier, the flames of which engulf the child. When the flames fall upon the body, the limbs contract and the open mouth seems almost to be laughing until the contracted body slips quietly into the brazier. Thus, it is that the grin is known as sardonic laughter since they die laughing, unquote. Now, skeptics will often protest, maintaining that these children died of natural causes or of disease and were later burned. However, some of the inscriptions on the urns in question record vows to Tanit. Tanit was the consort of Baal Haman, also known as Ashtoreth in the Bible in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 23. Haman may come from a Phoenician word meaning quote-unquote hot or quote-unquote burning being. In this case, the inscriptions on the urns record that the vows to Baal Haman have been met. Many other inscriptions record dedications from the children's parents to Baal Haman or Tanit, ending with the explanation that the god concerned had, quote, heard my voice and blessed me, unquote. 
Now, these heinous practices are condemned many times over by God throughout the Bible, such as Leviticus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3. Quote, Again, thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whoever he be of the children of Israel, or the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. And I will set my face against the man, and will cut him off from among his people, because he hath given his seed unto Moloch, to defile my sanctuary, and to profane my holy name." Unquote. There is also a very curious entry worth study found in Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. God commands Moses to send representatives from each tribe to search the land of Canaan. Moses further charges that those chosen to specifically assess the occupants of the land as to their strength and numbers, their infrastructure status, and their agricultural status. After 40 days of searching the land as instructed, the chosen members returned to Moses and Israel. In verses 26 through 33, the twelve chosen give their report with two different verdicts. Essentially, Joshua and Caleb are both under the impression that Israel is fully capable of entering, defeating, and inhabiting the land of Canaan. The remaining ten chosen are under the opinion that Israel is too weak in comparison to the inhabitants of Canaan, and that any attempt to enter an inhabitant Canaan will end in Israel's defeat. In chapter 14, we read that Israel became disheartened with the majority report and threatened mutiny against Moses and Aaron. Eventually, God judges Israel and causes them to wander 40 years in the desert for their lack of faith. In this incident, the key verse of interest is verse 32, which says, quote, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. Unquote. This verse is coupled with Numbers chapter 14, verse 37, which comments on the ten, saying, quote, Even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. Unquote. Now, almost Every classic commentary seems to have the understanding that God was upset with these ten men because they lied. The assumption is that because the text says in both instances that they gave a quote-unquote evil report, that the expression quote-unquote evil report means that they lied, hence it was evil. So, parsing these verses and the accompanying incident to see what is going on, and looking at the incident, we look at the known facts to see what was a lie. Well, firstly, it appears that all 12 searchers returned together as a group 
since there is no indication or mention otherwise. Second, when they returned, they had in their possession the same evidence examples of the agricultural bounty of the land which they had just searched out. In this case, they had a representative sample of grapes, pomegranates, and figs. In verse 27, we have a statement from the searchers who comment on the agricultural status of the land, saying, quote, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it, unquote. At this point, we must ask if the lie, i.e. the quote-unquote evil report from the ten who were standing right there, was to say, quote, No, there is no milk and honey. There are no sources of food. We will all starve. Uh, there's a famine. The land is barren, unquote then it wouldn't be difficult for Joshua and Caleb, much less any Israelite with eyesight, to look at the grapes, pomegranates, and figs and see an obvious contradiction. Secondly, as we look at the actual complaint by the ten, nowhere do they dispute the agricultural bounty of the land. Instead, it is all about the inhabitants. Okay, so let's focus on the inhabitants. Here again, there is a subtle difference regarding the report of the inhabitants and any quote-unquote evil report or lie. In verses 28 through 30, Joshua and Caleb both readily admit that, quote, the people be strong that dwell in the land, unquote, quote, the cities are walled and very great, unquote, quote, the children of Anak are there, unquote, as well as, quote, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan, unquote. Comparing this to the report of the ten, they also reported that the inhabitants of the land were, quote-unquote, strong, and that the, quote, sons of Anak were there, unquote. When all is compared, the difference is not among the who, and what facts of Canaan, the difference is the perception and the abilities of Israel and their reliance or lack thereof upon God. Joshua and Caleb ultimately placed their trust in God, saying, quote, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it, unquote. While at the same time, the remaining ten in Israel doubt God's provision, saying, quote, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we, unquote. And by their own admission, they saw themselves as, quote, unquote, grasshoppers in their own sight, as well as the sight of the Canaanites. The next thing to consider is the use of the phrase translated, quote, evil report, unquote. As stated, the assumption is what is being discussed is that the 
10 lying to Moses, Aaron, and Israel about what they saw. Since lying is evil, then that is what the phrase, quote, evil report is there for. However, according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs, Hebrew and English lexicon of the Old Testament, the words translated, quote, evil report, unquote, specifically in this case should be translated, quote, a true report of an evil doing, unquote. In other words, we have confirmation that the report given by the ten was not being characterized as evil because it was a lie. It was instead a report which was true in all of its essential facts that all twelve observed. Secondly, one or more of the searchers had witnessed something involving quote-unquote evil doing, unquote, which is why the phrase, quote-unquote, evil report is used. This begs two questions. One, what is the, quote-unquote, evil doing which the searchers witnessed? Two, if the ten were simply reporting some, quote, evil doing which they truthfully witnessed, then why did God get angry with them and sentence them to die in the wilderness while they wandered for 40 years? First, let's discuss the issue of possible evil doing. In verse 32, we find this rather enigmatic statement, quote, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. Traditionally, it appears that the explanation to this verse is one of two things. One, the land in question, Canaan, was one that was either unhealthy, exposed, or in discord due to a. constant would-be enemies, conquerors, wars, or internal strife, or b constant funerals as a result of plague, disease, and or as a result of the above, A. 2. The land in question was difficult to maintain, sparse, infertile, or otherwise unable to adequately support its current inhabitants, and thus the euphemistic phrase saying, the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. Unfortunately, neither explanation fits the scenario in context. If one is true and the land of Canaan had enemies, conquerors, wars, and or internal strife, and or the land had regular funerals for its inhabitants as a result of them dying from war, disease, and plague, then surely Israel has a much better chance of succeeding in their goal and defeating Canaan than if Canaan is united, healthy, whole, and sustainable as a living place for Israel. Additionally, both Joshua, Caleb, and the other ten would not be estimating Canaan's inhabitants as strong. If 
too is true, and the land of Canaan was difficult to maintain, sparse, infernal, or otherwise unable to adequately support its current inhabitants, then why does everyone bother to bring grapes, pomegranates, and figs as an example of what is to be found in the land? How is it possible to have these agricultural examples in hand in the midst of constant war, funerals, plagues, civil war, famine, etc.? In this event, it would be Joshua and Caleb who use these as props to entrap and trick Israel in going into war for a land which is already devastated. Surely the ten would have said that what they brought back was little if that's all they could find in the land. Instead, the ten give the agricultural proof as a pass and concentrate on the inhabitants. But again, how does a vast Canaanite population with fortified cities and strong inhabitants, some of which are said to be giants, subsist themselves in a barren, plague, and disease-infested, war-torn land with little or no food? Having given the above options their consideration in context with what we know, Neither option seems to really satisfy the full facts of the text. However, while admittedly not a pleasant one, there is another possibility which deserves consideration. When the text says, quote, The land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, everyone automatically assumes that the word, quote, land, unquote, can only mean the land in the sense of a geographical area comprised of dirt, rocks, and or earth. However, the word translated quote-unquote land can also be translated as quote, the collective inhabitants of the area, land, or place, unquote. In other words, the sentence could be translated to read, quote, the inhabitants of the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. Bluntly and apologetically, the Israelite searchers may and likely did witness acts of cannibalism by the Canaanite inhabitants upon its own citizens. This would also seem to agree with the idea that the Canaanites saw the Israelites as grasshoppers in their sight, since many people would be accustomed to the understanding that grasshoppers could be a source of food. In any case, this theory would certainly and accurately fit the description of giving a report including, quote, evil doing or, quote, an evil report as translated in the text. Secondly, this report is not out of character for the history of the Canaanites, which we have already discussed thus far. Thirdly, the specter of Israel having to fight with a people who were accustomed to such an abhorrent practice involving not only the touching, but the eating of a dead body, would make the Orthodox Jewish believer 
unclean. Fourthly, the prospect of likely being eaten by one's enemy would certainly motivate Israelites to consider returning to Egypt as they, as they did. Lastly, the directive by God to be separate from and to eliminate people who routinely practice such behaviors so as to protect and preserve those who found themselves victims of such practices would be placed into a context which is relatively far easier to understand. Finally, we ask, if the ten were simply reporting some quote-unquote evil doing which they truthfully witnessed, then why did God get angry with them and sentence them to die in the wilderness while they wandered for forty years? The simple reason was that these ten in Israel failed to look beyond their own strength and the real and or perceived strength of the Canaanites to God and his strength who had already told them to possess the land. In their own words, they saw themselves as grasshoppers instead of foot soldiers of the living God whose perfect will was that of victory. Next, we have Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 31, where God refers to the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, which Israel would inherit. Quote, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Unquote. Also, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. Quote, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not learn to do after the abomination of those nations. There shall not be found among you any one that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or an observer of times or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee." Unquote. Also, Psalm chapter 106, verses 36 through 38. Quote, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Unquote. To conclude the issue of the nature and the character of the Canaanites, Merrill Unger a Bible commentator, scholar, and theologian summarizes the matter this way, quote, The Canaanite nations were punished because of their extreme wickedness. God did not cast out the Canaanites for being a particular race or ethnic group. God did not send the Israelites into the land of Canaan to destroy a number of righteous nations. Their cultic practice was barbarous and thoroughly licentious. 
their deities had no moral character whatsoever, which must have brought out the worst traits in their devotees and entailed many of the most demoralizing practices of the time, including sensuous nudity, orgiastic nature worship, snake worship, and even child sacrifice. As Moses wrote, the inhabitants of Canaan would burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. The Canaanite nations were anything but innocent. In truth, these Canaanite cults were utterly immoral, decadent, and corrupt, dangerously contaminating and thoroughly justifying the, the divine command to destroy their devotees. They were so nefarious that God said that they defiled the land and the land could stomach them no longer according to Leviticus chapter 18 verse 25, quote, the land vomited out its inhabitants, unquote. Now as we conclude this episode, we pause to look back five episodes ago when we took up the challenge to answer the question posed by atheists, skeptics, secular humanists, and the world. The question was, if God is a God of love, then how could God order the killing of every Canaanite man, woman, and child? Over the course of these episodes, we have addressed many critical factors which give proper perspective and context to properly understanding both the question and the answer. We discussed sincerity, intellectual honesty, hypocrisy, ultimate authority, sovereignty, property rights, justice, separation, wartime ethics, continuity, mercy, survival, and the messianic line and character. All of these are important issues without which we cannot hope to correctly answer the question at hand. However, as important as all of these and more are, there is a greater, more important, more basic issue looming which is indispensable. I would submit that perhaps the single greatest commodity necessary is sincerity. Whenever man initiates the quest for the truth, beginning with insincerity, he has already seeded the ground in rocky soil. The greater the insincerity, the rockier the soil becomes. Eventually, the ground is so hard that no seed will ever penetrate, much less grow. For the insincere, this is why neither this series of episodes nor all the information, explanations, documentation, proof will ever suffice for this question or any other question regarding the things of God. The reason is that proof can no more penetrate a hardened heart than a seed can penetrate solid rock. However, if so be that God draws any man, then by his grace he will also prepare the ground and soften our hearts, making it ready for even the smallest seed 
by which God's hand, it may be planted, water, grow, and bear fruit. Jesus framed the issue this way in Mark chapter 4, verses 3 through 12. Quote, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit, and sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing that they may hear, and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Unquote. Father, I pray that your Spirit would by faith implant the power necessary in our lives to be transformed from death to life. I pray that we each might have the sincerity, sobriety, discernment, provided by the newness of life given by your Son, Jesus, to see, to hear, and to comprehend the fullness of your love for each of us who walk according to faith, and not by sight. We give thanks that by your infinite grace and mercy, that having been redeemed and covered by your blood, we are no longer appointed unto wrath, but are rather appointed under fellowship and joy eternal in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in